a word of caution. This episode features descriptions of victims who may have been victims of homicide and or sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13 or who's sensitive to these topics in particular. A deceased woman is found behind an old mill in South Carolina and investigators have no clue to her identity 10 years later. A murdered young woman is left beside a highway in North Carolina wearing a sweatshirt that gives a clue as to just how young she is. A young boy's body is found underneath a billboard in North Carolina and years later is finally identified, along with his mother, who no one even realized was missing. Clues about a young couple murdered in South Carolina in 1976 show that the two were only passing through the area, but as of 2021, they are finally identified. 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered in the United States each year. Approximately 1,000 of those bodies remain unidentified after one year. Thanks to advances in genetic genealogy, more and more of these unidentified people, often the victims of homicide, are getting their names back. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 27, Unidentified People in the Carolinas. I want to start out by talking about a nonprofit organization called the DNA Doe Project because it plays an important role in some of the cases I'm sharing in today's episode. The organization was founded in 2017 with the mission of identifying John and Jane Doe's using genetic genealogy. It is an all-volunteer organization with more than 60 experienced genetic genealogists who devote their time and passion to the cause. They also help raise funds necessary to cover the expensive lab costs involved in extracting and sequencing DNA from remains whenever an agency is unable to afford them. A woman named Margaret Press, who holds a degree in linguistics and a doctorate in Native American languages and child language development from UCLA, co-founded the DNA Doe Project with forensic genealogist Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. According to an in-depth article about the organization that ran in BuzzFeed, Volunteers with the DNA Doe Project consider themselves to be devoted to the dead rather than the living. They aren't looking to identify suspects, such as what happened in the case of Golden State Killer Joseph James D'Angelo. Rather, they want to put names to unidentified bodies. The first case I want to talk about isn't from North or South Carolina, but I think you'll find the details behind it fascinating. The oldest ID the DNA Doe Project ever made was that of a person who had passed away in 1916. I came across the story written by a journalist named Heather Murphy that ran in the New York Times in January of this year. In August of 1979, a family hunting for arrowheads discovered a man's headless torso buried in a shallow grave in a group of volcanic caves in eastern Idaho. Then, in March of 1991, an 11-year-old girl exploring that same cave system 
found a mummified hand. Once local officials were alerted, they began a search of the area and discovered an arm and two legs wrapped in burlap. That's when researchers and students from Idaho State University got involved and participated in additional searches trying to find the skull of the victim, which they never found. In 2019, they began working with the DNA Doe Project to try and identify the remains from a piece of the victim's tibia. The cool conditions of the volcanic cave the remains were buried in appeared to have helped preserve the genetic material because the DNA sample had a very high quality. There was also a sock that was almost completely preserved found on the remains. After uploading a profile to various DNA databases, genetic genealogists began searching for relatives of the victim. What really intrigued the researchers was a wanted poster of a fugitive bootlegger who had escaped from an Idaho jail back in 1916. The poster listed the items of the clothing the bootlegger wore as a light-colored hat, brown coat, red sweater, and blue overalls over black trousers. The man's name was Joseph Henry Loveless. After several months of searching, the Clark County Sheriff's Department in Dubois, Idaho, located Joseph's 87-year-old grandson in California. He took a DNA test, and the results confirmed that the remains found in the Idaho cave network were those of his grandfather. Joseph Henry Loveless had a bit of a checkered past. He first escaped from an Idaho jail by hiding a saw in his shoe and cutting his way out of his cell. A few months later, while still on the lam, he allegedly murdered his common-law wife by bludgeoning her with an axe. He was jailed for the murder, but while awaiting trial, he escaped once again using the saw-in-the-boot trick. While his identity has now been confirmed after 103 years, investigators can't be sure why he was killed and buried in such a manner. There is speculation his wife's family could have found him and murdered him as a payback for what he did to her, but there's no definitive proof of that. The first unidentified person case I want to discuss is called Jane Doe Startex. On October 26, 2011, a man was searching for scrap metal behind a home in the Startex Mill Village in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Instead of scrap metal, he came across a set of skeletal remains hidden under a tarp beneath a couch and other debris. The remains were along Highway 290 behind a home in the village. A forensic anthropologist examined the remains, determining the deceased to be a white Caucasian female between the ages of 40 to 55 years old. She stood around five feet, five inches tall and had short reddish brown hair. Her ears had been pierced at least once and a gold stem with a redstone earring was found by the side of her head. The case is being treated as a homicide. According to an article I found at the Spartanburg Herald Journal, Rick Ellis, an investigator with the Spartanburg County Sheriff's and Coroner's offices, has been using the NamUs database to conduct searches based on characteristics such as dental information and distinct body features to see if any profiles match characteristics from the StarTex remains. NamUs is a national missing persons database that offers criminal justice professionals resources to locate information on missing persons, locate family members for DNA sample collections, and next-of-kin death notifications, as well as other tips and leads. 
a DNA sample was extracted from the woman's femur and sent to the University of North Texas for specialized testing. Another investigator with the Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office said this case is unusual because there had not been any missing persons cases in that area reported to the Sheriff's Office within the previous five years of the StarTex discovery. I will put a forensic artist rendering of Jane Doe StarTex on the Missing in the Carolinas website, along with the show notes for this episode. Anyone with information about Jane Doe StarTex is asked to call the Spartanburg County Coroner's Office at 865-596-2509 or Crime Stoppers at 1-888-CRIME-SC. Up next is the heartbreaking story of New Hope, Jane Doe. In a still unresolved case, a cleanup crew found the remains of a young woman on Interstate 40 in Orange County in North Carolina on September 19, 1990. The girl was down an embankment just east of the exit onto New Hope Church Road in Hillsboro. She was estimated to be younger than 20 years old at the time of her death. She stood around 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighed around 120 pounds. She had shoulder-length brown hair that had been frosted and dyed strawberry blonde. Her eye color is unknown. The sweatshirt she was found in remains the most mysterious clue to the young woman's identity. It was pink, featuring three cartoon bunnies, two riding bicycles, and one on a unicycle. When found, the young woman was unclothed from the waist down. She wasn't wearing shoes, but her socks were clean, indicating she must have been removed from a vehicle before being placed in the embankment. She had been strangled and left on the side of the interstate about a week prior to being discovered by the cleanup crew. Some people thought they may have seen the young woman in the area at a Ramada Inn on Interstate 85 near the Burlington, North Carolina area, walking or asking money for a ride, but that has never been confirmed for sure. Investigators have been working with a woman named Leslie Kaufman, a forensic genealogist who offers pro bono assistance to law enforcement in unidentified cases through her company, First Genes. She also assisted with the Bobby Witt case, which I will talk about later in this episode. Because social media and the internet weren't available as sources for law enforcement back in the early 1990s, the Orange County Sheriff's Department hopes that a new likeness of the girl created by renowned forensic artist Carl Koppelman will help reach the right person to help get her identified. As it stands, investigators have pursued more than 100 leads. More than 40 women have been ruled out as a match. If you have any information about the identity of New Hope Jane Doe, contact Captain Joshua Wood at the Sheriff's Office at 919-245-2927. There's also a Facebook page with information on the case called Who is 1990 Orange County, North Carolina, Jane Doe. Here are a few other local cases in my area of Mecklenburg County in North Carolina that are listed as active cases on the DNA Doe Project website. First is Mecklenburg John Doe. On December 24, 2008, a set of partial skeletal human remains were found in a heavily wooded area on Dixie River Road in Charlotte. Forensic investigators determined the remains belonged to a white Caucasian male, approximately 18 to 30 years old, between 5 feet 5 inches to 5 feet 11 inches tall. 
They believed the young man had died about three years prior to being found. Investigators have not released the suspected cause or manner of death, but according to the report filed on NamUs, the case is being treated as a homicide. Anyone with information on Mecklenburg John Doe should contact Don Martin, a detective with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department Homicide Unit at 704-619-8193. Her email address is dmartin at cmpd.org. Next are details on a Mecklenburg Jane Doe. On March 17, 2011, the incomplete skeletal remains of a female were found in a wooded area on Statesville Avenue in Charlotte. The woman, who was estimated to be between the ages of 20 to 30 years old, was white or Hispanic. She weighed around 110 pounds when she died. The manner and cause of death have not been released at this time. She was wearing a small white t-shirt with the words Virginia Beach, Virginia emblazoned on it in pink letters, a black bra, blue denim jeans, and a pair of navy and plaid canvas boys boat shoes, size four. In 2016, detectives with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department's Homicide ADW Unit worked with anthropology professors at nearby Davidson College and Davidson Police Department to create a forensic reconstruction of the possible victim in this case. Genealogical research is currently underway and anyone with tips is asked to call 704-432-TIPS and speak directly to Homicide Unit Detective. Detective Fitch is the lead detective assigned to this case. The public can also call Crime Stoppers at 704-334-1600 or visit the Crime Stoppers mobile app website at charlottecrimestoppers.com. And now, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. I write and edit as part of my day job, but there's also a lot of project management and administrative tasks that take up large chunks of time and leave me feeling drained. Dabbling in creative writing and entering writing contests is a nice change of pace. If you like writing creative nonfiction, I encourage you to check out the Creative Nonfiction Essay Contest over at WOW Women on Writing. The mission of this contest is to inspire creative nonfiction and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally, and entries must be in English. Your story must be true, but the way you tell it is your chance to get creative. WOW is open to all styles of essay, from personal essay to lyric essay to hybrid essay and beyond. The deadline for this latest creative nonfiction contest is July 31st, so you have plenty of time to craft your essay. I decided to flex my own humor muscles a bit recently and wrote a piece all around the contentious behavior I've seen on the Nextdoor community website. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $500. WOW allows a maximum of 300 entries. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. And now, let's get back to the show. I want to talk about a few people in the Carolinas who have recently been identified thanks to DNA testing. The first is a woman officials called Durham Jane Doe. In 2016, a crew cleaning out the storage unit of a man who had passed away made a shocking discovery of human remains in a storage tote. 
The unit had been rented by the same person since 2010, but authorities couldn't determine exactly how long the remains had been there, and they ruled the manner of death as suspicious. Investigators called her Durham Jane Doe and described her as a white woman with red hair. Based on what I read in an online publication called Native News Online, a woman named Jessica Poitra in North Dakota saw an article circulating online about the discovery and wondered if the remains could belong to her older sister, Missy, who had been missing since 2005. Missy Poitra was 28 years old the last time her family saw her. She had been living in Durham with a boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. Her daughter, who was 10 years old at the time of her mother's disappearance, contacted the Durham Police Department and asked them to conduct a DNA swab test to see if the remains could belong to Missy. In November 2020, police identified the remains of being Native American descent. Missy was a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa in North Dakota. Durham police reached out to Missy's father to test a DNA sample of his against those of the unidentified woman's remains. It was a match. Here is a clip that ran this past month on a news website regarding the case. One step closer to closure. After five years, bones mysteriously discovered at this storage facility now have a name. Those remains have been identified as a Melissa Ann Portra. This is the woman behind the skeleton. Authorities first reported Melissa Portra missing last year while investigating an unrelated case. They later learned this mother from North Dakota had been out of touch with her family back home. It's here in East Durham where police say she was known to be. Police say she's listed on incident reports in this community dating back to 2005. They would not say why. Fast forward to 2016, Portra's remains found at this ample storage building on Carpenter Fletcher Road. The caller told officers the storage unit was being cleaned out after the death of the person who had been renting the unit. Tonight, her death is a homicide investigation. Police won't say if the renter who died was involved in Portra's disappearance or her death. After five years of searching for clues with the help of the FBI, State Medical Examiner's Office, and DNA Labs, DPD is hoping for new leads. It's not an easy process. It's not a very quick process. We have to do things in a certain manner. And so it took a little bit of time because we had to go through a lot of different organizations to get to where we are now. Melissa Portra's remains are currently at the state's medical examiner's office. They are headed back to North Dakota to be with her family. Her family raising nearly $10,000 on GoFundMe to give her a proper memorial. Now, Durham Police want you to call their headquarters or Crime Stoppers and leave anonymous tips. Any tip that leads to an arrest has a cash reward. In Durham, Tim Pulliam, ABC 11 Eyewitness News. Anyone with information on this case is asked to call the Durham Police Department at 919-560-4440. They can also leave an anonymous tip by calling Crime Stoppers at 919-683-1200. Next, I want to talk about the mystery of the boy under the billboard. I've written about this case on my blog at missinginthecarolinas.com, but since it ties in well with today's podcast topic, I wanted to include it here, too. This was a mystery that perplexed investigators in Orange County, North Carolina, for years. 
In September of 1998, a grass-cutting crew discovered skeletal remains under a billboard off Interstate 85 in Mebane. The clothing found with the remains offered clues that the body belonged to that of a young boy who had not yet reached puberty. He had dark, straight brown hair and was initially thought to have been Hispanic and possibly the child of a migrant worker. For years, his identity remained a mystery. Thanks to the dogged determination of an Orange County Sheriff's investigator named Tim Horn, the boy, Robert Bobby Adam Witt, has finally been identified and his murderer brought to justice. In January of this year, the boy's father, John Russell Witt, age 57, pleaded guilty to the boy's murder. It was a conviction more than 20 years in the making. The sad thing is that Bobby Witt was never reported missing, which led to the difficulty in identifying him as the victim. Back in 2011, using the boy's skull and DNA results from Parbon Nanolabs, Inc., a forensic sculptor created a three-dimensional bust of what the boy must have looked like. But still, no one came forward with any information. In 2018, genealogist Dr. Barbara Ray Venter, a genetic genealogy consultant who had also been involved in the Golden State Killer case, got involved. She showed investigators that the unidentified boy from North Carolina was a first-generation child of Asian and white parents. Searching the Ancestry DNA databases, she located a possible first cousin of the child's living in Hawaii. They traced the boy to family members in Ohio, who said they believed their cousin, Bobby Witt, had moved back to South Korea with his mother. This led Horn to wonder if Bobby's mother had also been murdered. After more digging, a tip from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children helped him locate the information about the unidentified Asian woman found in Spartanburg the same year the boy's body had been found in 1998. She had been bound and strangled. A DNA comparison confirmed the boy and the woman, Yong Wacho, were biologically related. Further DNA investigation led to a man named John Witt as the boy's father. John Witt had met Myung while serving in the Air Force in South Korea. They married and she moved to the United States with him, living first in Ohio, where she gave birth to Bobby. When Bobby was 10, the family moved south to Concord, North Carolina. John told investigators he began having an extramarital affair and decided to murder 44-year-old Myung in order to be with his mistress. He then drove her body to South Carolina to dispose of it. He moved his mistress into his home, but she didn't get along with Bobby, so he made the decision to take the boy for a drive one day and murdered him by strangulation. John had told his mistress that his wife had gone back to South Korea, so after he murdered Bobby and left his body in Mebin, he reported the boy had gotten on a plane to join his mother. John Witt was arrested for several armed robberies in 1999 and has been in federal prison ever since. He pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and concealing a death. He told the court he was haunted by the murders and had even tried to commit suicide in prison in 2001. He will be transferred from Kentucky to the federal prison in Butner to complete his federal sentence before being moved to North Carolina's state prison system. His sister, who was still living in Ohio at the time, was shocked when she received the news of Bobby and Young's deaths. 
John had told her the two went back to South Korea, and she never had any reason to suspect they were deceased or that her own brother could have been capable of such senseless violence. In episode 14, South Carolina cases that were featured on Unsolved Mysteries, I discussed a pair of victims known as Jacques and Jane Doe. For anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, or who would like a refresher on the case, here are a few details. The case of Jacques and Jane Doe was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on January 20th, 1995. The couple was discovered in August of 1976 in Sumter, South Carolina, on a rural road by a trucker passing through. They had both been shot multiple times. They both appeared to be in their 20s, with the man measuring six feet tall and the woman about five feet five inches. The man had extensive dental work and was wearing an expensive watch and a ring inscribed with the initials JPF. He was estimated to be between 18 and 30 years of age. The woman had brown hair and blue or green eyes, with two distinct moles on the left side of her face. She was wearing two rings that were either Mexican, handmade, or Native American. The couple both had skin that had olive undertones, so investigators initially believed they might be siblings. That was later ruled out after DNA testing. When they were found, they had no money on them, only their jewelry and clothing. Not long after the podcast episode aired, I saw news that the couple had been identified at long last. According to an article published on the WIS news site in late 2007, the Sumter County Coroner exhumed both bodies where they were buried in a church cemetery for a DNA sample. A citizen sleuth named Matt McDaniel had followed this case for many years, and he suggested the Sumter County Sheriff's Office contact the DNA Doe Project. So in June of 2019, the DNA was sent to the DNA Doe Project. Kevin Lord, with Sabre Investigations in Belton, Texas, performed biomatics work to produce files suitable for upload to genealogical databases. After uploading these files to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA, DNA Doe Project's volunteers identified relatives of interest to the victims. The woman was identified as 25-year-old Pamela Buckley of Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the man was James Freund of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Based on an article that ran in the state newspaper, Pamela Buckley was last seen and reported missing from Colorado Springs in December 1975. Freund was last seen in Lancaster, Pennsylvania in December 1975. The relationship between the two remains unknown. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.